come to you now and we ask again that you would be with us as we open your living, active, powerful word. Thank you for giving it to us, protecting it through the centuries. Thank you that we can open it and be confident that we have a book that's from you. So that being true, help us to pay attention to it. Have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say to each of us individually and us as a church body. Help us to hear well and then to have you implant it into our hearts and souls that it might then produce some fruit for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. By the way, if you are a guest here today, I know that we have some, uh, make sure that you plan on staying after our service in here. We have lunch each week, as I mentioned, and uh, it's always good, and it's good to to spend some time talking after the service, uh, whether it's about the service itself or just getting to know one another better, sharing life together, part of the important uh, element that Paul is addressing as he goes through the letter of Philippians. So that's where we're at, the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 3 again this morning. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, uh, if if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You know, there are uh, people that come to Alaska, like you guys. You're up here for two weeks. There are people who actually have come up here for a vacation, and they fall in love with the state of Alaska. It's like, wow! It's like, oh, this is this is amazing, the, the scenery, the beauty, the animals. It, it's, what, a, what a place. I think I want to go live there. And they go back to where they're from, and they set their things in order, and they move to Alaska. It, because their entire view of 
what's really nice, a nice place to live has been changed. <laughs> it was transformed when they set feet in the great land, right? Well, that's the way the gospel is. It, it transforms us. It causes us to see life from a completely different point of view. And that's what Paul is really speaking about in these verses that we've read. We, we kind of reviewed the first six verses last week where Paul is warning them about false teachers. And then he, he talks about, you know, they like to talk about their spiritual resume, resume confidence in the flesh, you know. What, their list of things that they do and the rituals they keep and, you know, how pleased God is with them, you know. You know and they, they would be like the Pharisee that was in the temple and said, thank God that I'm not like the, these other people, you know, because I tithe, you know, on everything possible and I give and I do works of this and that. And it's like, that's what these people were doing. They were claiming, it's like they had a right relationship with God by keeping certain rituals by keeping the law. And he says, well, if you want to go based on that, I've got you beat. And he's not being serious. He's not saying he has confidence in the flesh. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. If that were the measure, though, I'd be the king of the hill. I'd be on top. You know, because I've got the right ritual. I was circumcised the eighth day. I've got the right race of people, you know, of the people of Israel. I've got the right rank. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, I've got the right tribe that I was from, the tribe of Benjamin. And, uh, you know, according, uh, according to uh, zeal, you know, I, I was on top. I was the one that was out there persecuting the enemies, or at least as I saw them at that time, the enemies of, you know, true believers. I was out there persecuting the church, and, you know, I was zealous for that, and... When it, comes to, when it comes to the law, I was blameless. So he kind of shares what his spiritual resume was compared to theirs. He says, that isn't how I look at life anymore. And that's where it changes in verse 7. But, important, but in contrast to that, having no confidence in the flesh, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So what we saw Paul do, we only covered one of the five things in, in this section last week, is he starts talking in terms of profit and loss. And by the way, if you don't have an insert from last week, I assume most of you brought it, but you'd like an insert, raise your hand, and Chris Tachi will get you one. So on that, that number one, you're going to put, put in, let's talk about profit and loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He changes his metaphor. He's talking about, you know, coming to know Christ, but he puts it in the terms of accounting, of ledger keeping, of gain and loss, of assets and liabilities. And what we saw last week, the first of those, what, he, what he's saying very simply, and it really guides the rest of verses 8 through 11, is, you know, my entire perception of life changed when I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Whatever I thought was gain, 
uh, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, all that list, what I thought was gain, I now count as loss. It wasn't, those things aren't to me a asset, a profit, they're a liability, they're a loss. And he says, Christ entirely changed my way of looking at life. And that is the way the gospel works for everyone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus. Our, our view of life is like his view of life. That's what Paul said in Colossians 3. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. You know, uh, don't, don't set your mind on the things of the earth. He said it in Romans 8 too, that, that you know, if you... If you view life from the flesh, it's this. If you view life from the Spirit of God, it's this. It's like life changes entirely when you receive the gospel. It's transformational. Why? Well, because of who Jesus is. That's what he means at the end of verse 7 when he says, I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. I told you last week that a better translation of that would be because of Christ or on account of Christ. He, he didn't count, uh, see it as uh, what was gain as lost now for the sake of Christ in the sense of that, you know, Christ would somehow benefit from it. No, he's not talking about what benefit there would be to Christ. He's talking about his change in perspective. I See all of that now as a loss because of Christ. When I met Jesus and I realized he was the Lord, that he was God himself, that he was truly the Messiah, my entire perspective on life changed because of Christ. Now the second thing that we see in in this uh, section of verses, particularly 8 through 11, Uh, is the knowledge of Christ is the greatest gain. If you're filling in your blanks, the knowledge of Christ is the greatest gain. It's it's interesting. English doesn't always reflect what you see in a Greek text, but in in, in verses 8 through 11, that's one long extended sentence in, in the Greek. And it expands more on this idea of gain and loss. So what he's basically doing is in verse 7, given the principle, whatever gain I had, confidence in the flesh, I now have counted as loss. Let me explain that a little bit more. The knowledge of Christ has totally changed my perspective. He's comparing his present view of life with what his past view of life was. He emphatically states, indeed, I count everything as loss. So you see, he's just continuing the thought of verse 7. And that could be translated, on the contrary, or rather, I count all things uh, or everything as loss. It's like my entire way of looking at life has changed. And he's strongly stressing the contrast between his previous confidence in the flesh and his new view since encountering Christ on the Damascus road. Is that how you see your life if you're a believer? I mean, when you came to know Jesus, did your perspective change? Now, it's it's not like we go from lost to perfect. In fact, we'll never be perfect until we're in his presence, Right? But we go from lost to being perfected. We go from unholy to being sanctified. 
He, and he changes the way we think. And he changes our desires. I, did you notice I said he changes? Not we change? This is what God produces. The gospel produces this kind of change. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And by the way, this, this uh, you know, seeing these two different ways of life being talked about is emphasized again by the change in tense from the perfect in verse 7. I have counted is the best way that verse 7 would be translated. Whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And I explained to you last week, the perfect tense basically means this. It happened in the past, but the, the, the change is continuing right? It happened when I met Jesus, but that changed the way I view life from then on. But here it's even doubly uh, emphasized because he changes from the uh, perfect tense in verse 7 to the present tense in verse 8, and that would be translated, I continue to count as loss. Again, emphasizing that this change, uh, you know, by the way, this is very uh, purposeful by Paul in changing the tense to show that Paul continues to view life from a different perspective than he did previously when he had confidence in the flesh. What had become a way of looking at life from a big picture, from overhead, so to speak, which was what was meant by I have counted as loss in verse 7, he basically says it's reinforced by you know, conscious, deliberate choices that he is making uh, where he refuses to trust in his accomplishments, his works, his deeds for Christ, his service Christ. He doesn't think about those accomplishments as being what would make him right with God. He refuses to trust in such things to gain favor with God, but rather he chooses to trust in the accomplishment of Christ on his behalf. So, indeed, I continue to count everything as loss. And by the way, the the word everything there, it's an expansion of the whatever in verse 7. Remember, whatever gain I had, that was looking back to his past, those things that he had identified, the the circumcised eighth day of the, of the people of Israel, the Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as law, perfect. That was the whatever that he meant in verse 7. Here in verse 8, the everything is an expansion of that. It looks to anything and everything that he could trust in merit before God at the present time. You say, well, he wouldn't do that, would he? Well, no, he's saying he doesn't do that. But you know that this is something that affects believers on an ongoing basis. We talked about it last week. How we can come to Christ knowing it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. And then we can begin to live life and we end up thinking, wait a minute, but if I want to stay in a right relationship with God, if I want to experience his blessings and not his punishment, well, then I've got to keep certain 
rituals. I, I got to go to church. I mean, I, I got to read my Bible at least, you know, maybe three times a week. I never do that, but I should. And, uh, you know, and, and I should give money and I should serve in some capacity because I want to be right with God. And Paul said, no, 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 no. I have counted all of that kind of thinking as loss, and I continue to count it as loss. I'm not going to turn to my accomplishments in ministry. I mean, he could, right? He could say, yeah, I've, I've planted churches here and here and here and there. I take the gospel to places where it's never been taken before. Good as me. You know, God must look down on me. It's like, say, you're a really good guy. You're so much better than other people. And he said, no, no, I don't trust in that at all. I trust solely in the accomplishment of Christ through the gospel. Paul states here in verse 8, his reason for viewing all of the past and future accomplishments as a loss in one single prepositional phrase. You're loving the, the, the grammar, aren't you? You're loving it. I know you are, and, and you should. Here's the phrase. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. <laughs> the word surpassing that he uses here is a, a Greek participle, huper erkon. And it refers to something of great value and worth. Overflowing value. Overwhelming worth. You know, really, really up there. And, and though this word can stand on its own, you know, and it's similar to like Romans 8, uh, where he's talking about suffering at the end, but in all these things we are more than conquerors, we're overwhelming conquerors, the same kind of idea. Here in the text, though, it's clear what he's talking about. It, it can stand on its own, but with With what he's talking about regarding gain and loss, it seems like we should understand it in that way. So it's like he would be saying something like this. When I compare what I have found in the person of Christ my Lord to my previous confidence in the flesh, knowing Christ far surpasses, overwhelmingly surpasses anything that comes from the flesh. Hmm. We should believe that. And when he speaks of knowing Christ, you know, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, uh, it literally is, and, and as some other translations have it, it is because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ. But he's really talking about, you know, that he knows Christ. But he's not referring to mere intellectual facts that he has acquired uh, through the scriptures and through his journeys and so on. The Greek word that he uses here for knowledge is gnosis. And, And that word is one that speaks about something being known experientially, something that is known through personal involvement. Let me give you a picture of that. My wife is really good on the computer with, with accounting. And she will show me at times what she's doing. And I walk away and I've forgotten it all. 
I have to sit down. And you, you may be like this too. If you sit down and you actually use your fingers on the computer, you gain personal knowledge, right? You, you become acquainted with it and, and it will stick with you much more. And that's what Paul is, is talking here. It's not mere facts that he's learned. He's come to know Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is he, has a, he had a personal encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. And ever since then, he's had a growing, intimate, and personal relationship with Christ Jesus, which he values above anything and everything. Whatever and everything else. Christ is the greatest gain. If you want to think in terms of value, Christ is of most value compared to anything else. Now, number three on your sheet. Confidence in the flesh belongs in the trash. Confidence in the flesh belongs in the trash. Now, Paul, Paul's belief in Christ Jesus as Lord ha- had a price to pay. Tom was talking about a price that was paid. And he not only counted all things as loss, notice what he says in verse 8. He actually suffered the loss of all things. So counted as loss is like, I consider it that way. I view it that way, right? But he actually takes it a step further and says, I actually suffered the loss of all things. Now, in light of the view uh, of the things that he stated earlier about his confidence in the flesh, that list of things that I mentioned several times already, it is likely that the meaning here is that the status and the privileges that he had as a result of doing those things, being those things, you know, in the flesh, uh, you know, he lost all of that. And what that means is that Paul had been honored by his countrymen, the Jews, right? And particularly the religious, the highly religious Jews. He'd been honored as being at the top of the heap. They understood that he was, according to law, he was blameless. Not that he meant that he was without sin, but compared to other people, he was at, he, he was at the top. They understood that about Paul. No one was like Paul in their zeal to honor God. So going to the Greeks, like, let me go to another city and find those crazy Christians and, you know, cause them suffering. And, and now he says, you know, all of that is gone. It, it was ripped from me. My countrymen no longer see me that way. In fact, ever since I came to know Jesus and have been serving him, they view me as an enemy. They see me entirely different. I lost all that prestige and the things that went with it. Not that that mattered to Paul, but it it was a suffering of a loss all the same. Now, pause with me and just consider for a moment. Consider this idea in light of what is known as the prosperity gospel, which appeals to people to believe in Jesus so that they may gain Things and status. And by things, it's like to gain health and wealth and, you know, uh, status. To, to be recognized, oh, I'm a child of God. I'm above everyone else, you know. 
I'm an heir to the throne, and you know that's all that matters. Poor peons below me. You know that's kind of the, the prosperity gospel will take you. That kind of thinking. Those that preach the prosperity gospel would not consider telling people that believing in the gospel will most likely bring suffering and loss. But that is exactly what Paul is saying here. That believing in Christ, following Christ, has caused him to suffer the loss of what he had before. He's glad of it, but it was a suffering and loss all the same. Now, beyond counting all these uh, things as loss and even suffering the loss of his past status, Paul counted them, notice what verse 8 says, as rubbish. Now, a couple of the translations, at least the King James and the King James, has the word dung there. The, the Greek word skubala, and that's a word that, that I will never forget, skubala. It's kind of like uh, complaining, grumbling, Ganguzo, right? Uh, or the may it never be, meganoito. I mean, certain Greek words just stick with me. And this is one of them. Skubala. It's a very strong term that could be rendered waste. In other words, it was used of human and animal waste. Uh, it could be scraps of food that had gone bad. You know, stinky, moldy horrifyingly smelly food that had gone bad. It could be used of manure or excrement or refuge. Sometimes it was used of a human body that had been a body, dead body, that was decaying. The smell of it was just horrible. That's a word that he used is here when he says, because of knowing Christ, I consider all of my past confidence in the flesh as that, as scubula. And so the point is that whatever the meaning is, whether he was meaning dung, uh, excrement, or, or you know, trash that should be thrown out, the meaning is that was worthless, and it should be gotten rid of. It should be thrown in the trash. It should get rid of that way of thinking, like it, put it where it belongs, out in the dumpster. I opened up the dumpster this morning out here to throw a bag of garbage in it, and Rob Dick Foss had mowed the grass yesterday, and he dumped all that grass in the dumpster, and I lifted that, and it was already beginning to stink pretty bad. It's like I kind of pulled my nose back. Like, that's what we ought to be doing with any confidence in the flesh. That's what we ought to be doing when we say, well, I know that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but in order for me to stay right with God, I've got to be doing this. And, did, and by the way, I do pretty good at it, you know. That way of thinking belongs in the trash. It's scubula. It's scubula. So he, he expresses in the strongest possible terms his utter disdain for all the self-righteous merits that he had accumulated to impress God and man, particularly before he encountered Christ, but even afterwards. So in view of the excellency of knowing Christ, they were all worthless, disgusting, and most decidedly to be thrown out in the dumpster. But let's consider for a moment Paul's declaration that anything that we may place our faith in 
to make us right with God outside of faith uh, alone in Christ should be treated as scuba. That's what he's just said. That's what I've just explained to you. But should we not also understand that anything else that we would treat as more valuable than knowing Christ our Lord should be viewed in the same way? Do I need to repeat that? Should we not understand that anything that we see as more valuable, of greater worth than knowing Christ, meaning having a relationship with him, but having a growing, personal, intimate relationship with him, anything that we put before that should be viewed as skubla. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, there are things that may take more of our attention and affection than the Lord. Well, what kind of things? Well, it, they could be vocational pursuits. My career. <laughs> it's like, I got I to gotta give my all to my career. How else am I going to get set up for when I retire? And you're 23. What are you going to do? Give all of your attention and affection to your career until you retire? Is that, is that what you're thinking? Or, you know, it may not be vocational pursuits. It could be recreational activities. We all know people that live for that, don't we? Especially up here in the Great Land where people have moved just because it's so fantastic. Whether it's no machining or dog mushing, you know, winter sports, skiing, cross-country skiing, ice skating, you know, uh, or... It could be summer activities, four-wheeling, getting out of an Argo, climbing a mountain, fishing, hunting, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That could be put before the Lord, and certain people certainly put it before the Lord. That becomes their goal, especially during the summer. Hey, we live in Alaska. You got to enjoy the summer while it's summer. We have a long winter, so we've got to get out. We've got to get out. And by the way, I'm not saying that to say you should never go camping or never go hunting or fishing. Or Like, I may have to stay here and preach, and you, you get to go out and fish. I hope you feel bad about that, seriously. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm not saying we can't enjoy those kinds of things, but they should never come before knowing Christ and seeing him as our greatest gain. If it's not recreational, it could be, you know, relationships, right? It could be my husband or my wife or, you know, my blood family, my kids, whatever it is. You know, they're first. They're first. And, and then God. Family first and then God. Then Christ. I don't know. I think Christ talked about that. You're not willing to hate your father and mother and sister and brother compared to your love for Christ, then you're not worthy of him. No, he's got to come before anything and everything. And that is not so that we can keep a right relationship with him. It is because we have a right relationship with him. Anything that comes before an intimate and growing relationship with Christ is in the wrong place. And it should be viewed as scuba. 
scuba, rubbish, dung, manure, excrement, rotting flesh. That's how you should view it. I don't think any of you enjoy any of those things. Okay, number four, uh, the goal of turning from human merit to Christ. What is the point that he's getting across? Well, that's what he's giving us in the rest of verse 8 and verse 9. I mean, and he states the purpose or the result of counting everything as loss and seeing, you know, his past confidence in the flesh as rubbish, as scubula. And And he identifies two results or purposes. One, gaining Christ, that I may gain him. And number two, being found in Christ. Again, at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, the first result, that I may gain Christ, is an expression that's only understandable in light of the imagery that Paul's used throughout this section. The gain and loss, the assets and liabilities that he's talking about. The difference from his old way of viewing life compared to his new way of viewing life. And Paul's already referred to the gain, which he now considers loss. And now he's actually saying, let me tell you about the one true gain, the greatest gain, knowing Christ as his Lord. And if Paul were to place the whole world, you know, the whole world, its wealth, its, you know, its power, its status, its credentials, its prestige, its accolades, on one side of a weight scale, and then he put, you know, Jesus on the other side, the scale would bottom out on the side that Christ is on. He would overwhelmingly outweigh everything else in terms of real worth. Listen, this has got to be challenging us. Because we live in a world that is very much focused on things that we can collect. And we live in a world that is high on us being able to say, well, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, and I'm better than you. Confidence in the flesh. Isn't this very close to the meaning of Jesus when he taught his disciples? For what will profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and loses his own soul. Mark eight thirty six. So the, the construction that Paul uses here to express this goal, you know, that I may gain Christ, it, it actually implies more than that Paul had already gained Christ because of counting everything as loss. Now what I mean is that there is a, a, a past, present, and future sense to what he's saying. You know, that I may gain Christ. There's a sense in which Paul has certainly already gained Christ, and yet he is to yet gain Christ. That's true for all of us. We gain Christ the moment we trust in him. But that's not the end of it. We continue to gain Christ as we live life now, and we'll really gain Christ when we stand before him at the day of accounting. One writer puts it this way, although at regeneration a person receives Christ, this is only the beginning of his discovery of what riches this entails. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. 
But to search them out and appropriate them personally requires a lifetime. I have gained Christ. I am gaining Christ. I want to gain Christ yet. The second result is to be found in him, he says, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Well, that's not significantly different than gaining Christ. I think it's actually a further explanation of what he meant when he says that I may gain Christ. But in what sense would Paul be found in him? Well, as a believer, he's already in Christ, right? Every believer is in Christ. That is the most repeated phrase by Paul in his epistles, that we are in Christ as children of God. So every believer is in Christ. He was. You know, he was united with Christ, as every believer is, in his death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, you can look up Romans 6, 1 through 4, Galatians 2, 20. You know, I'm crucified with Christ, yet not I. For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Colossians 2.20, Colossians 3.1, and, and verse 3, they all emphasize that we have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And like the previous statement, this looks both backward and forward to the coming day of accountability when everyone will be judged before God. And when all the books are settled, you know, when the account, accounting is done, Paul wants to be found in Christ. With the righteousness of Christ placed on his account. Well, that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. You get that? God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become the sin bearer, to bear in his own body as hung on the tree, all of our sin, the consequence of our sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God is not in our works. It's not in our doing, not in our rituals, not in reading our Bibles or doing good things or giving money, going to church. No. It comes by faith in Christ. It's in Christ. So Paul's great ambition was to be found in Christ on that occasion when every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We studied that in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. But this, this, this uh, highly theological idea also has a practical side to it. Day by day, Paul's focus is being found found in Christ. He's totally absorbed with finding out more about Jesus. It's like gaining Christ is explained. It's like, I want to find more about him. I want his life to fill me up more and more. And by the way, the rest of verse 9 is a fuller description of what it means to be found in Christ. So look at that again. Verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is a fuller explanation of what it means to be found in him. For for. The books to be settled to Paul's favor or to any of our favor, 
you know, at the judgment day, at the, the day of accounting? Well, it couldn't happen on a righteousness of his own, he says. Not a righteousness of my own. Did you get that? When you get before God on the day of accounting, you're not going to be able to say, well, come on, God, I did this for you, and I did this for you, and I did this for you. I've got ten things that I did for you. Jesus addressed that issue. He says people will come before him and say that, and he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So it's not based on righteousness of his own, which means that it's not the kind of righteousness one might achieve through general conformity to the Mosaic law, a righteousness of his own, not based on the law. Well, righteousness, you know, righteousness, uh, that comes from obeying the law and being religious might win the admiration of men. Boy, you're a really religious person, aren't you? You're really a good person. How many times have you been talking to someone? With, I don't think they're Christian, but they're really good people. Right? That's that idea. You know, it might, it might be something that you could boast about. Romans 4, Paul talks about uh, that he says, you know, righteousness by the law might be something that you could boast before men, but you can't boast before God based on that. It could never be achieved through that. You know, it could never bring about the absolute perfection that God requires. Two verses. <laughs> you should write the references down. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So what is he saying? It's like, you can't get righteousness on your own by keeping the law. Why? Because you can't keep the law. I do pretty good. Pretty good, you know, it's close. It's good in horseshoes and hand grenades, but it's not good before God. James 2.10 also. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. A 99.9%. Only 1% bad. You're out. You cannot stand before God in your own righteousness. Romans chapter just another verse just came to mind here. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And there he means to the Jews who had received the Mosaic law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There's a day of accounting. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does the law actually do for you? It tells you that you can't keep it. That you fall short of the glory of God. That you could never be righteous before God. That's what the law brings to us. And that's why the law points us to Jesus. Because he kept it all. And they paid the price for us not being able to keep it. So in strong 
contrast. You notice how, how that verse reads. And be found in not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's an important but. To be found in Christ requires, or, or to be right before God requires a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. That's what he says. It requires that kind of righteousness. A righteousness which comes through Christ and has as its source, not in men, but in God who has provided Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as a sacrifice for our sins. You might be familiar with 1 John 2. 1. Such a great verse. My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. God made him who knew no sin, the righteous one. To become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God through him. Righteousness that is, make, makes us right with God, gives us a right relationship with God, comes through faith in Christ. It emphasizes that, that contrast between believing that through my own merit, my own obedience to the law, the, the being, you know, through being as good as I can be and being better than most. That's in contrast with fully trusting in Christ, what he has done as a sole means of us being right with God. You get why I called this whole section, why I titled it, The Gospel is Transformational. Totally changes the way that we think. And then just to end with it, the phrase, the righteousness which is from God, he really is talking about righteousness three times. Not a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And here's the third one, the phrase, the righteousness which is from God, it stresses the source of the righteousness of which Paul speaks. It is from God. It is out of God to us. And that stands in sharp contrast with from the law. Not a righteousness of my own from the law. No, it can't come from the law. It must come from God. A righteous standing before God at the time of accountability can only come through Christ and from God. Why? For no man can perfectly keep the law and therefore would be Bound to fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So a right standing with God must come from God. Did you get that? A right standing, a right relationship with God must come from God, not from within us. From God and through faith in Christ, for it must be from grace and through faith. Let me say that again. So the, righteous, the right standing with God must come from God and through Christ because it must be from grace and through faith. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, right? Even the faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man would boast. And 
every man would boast if it came that way. It comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Is that the gospel that you believed? You know, there's false gospels out there. Have you believed this gospel? We'll, we'll pick up with this next week again and continue on in through verse 16. But have you believed the gospel? I mean, that's the most important question that you can ask yourself. Are you absolutely certain that you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Now, you're not trusting in any work, any doing, any ability on your own. You're trusting in Christ alone. I hope that's true. And if it is true, then you have a personal and intimate and growing relationship with God. And that is of God. And that is of God, not of yourself. Well, Lord, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for this, really, a a simple truth. Not necessarily easy to believe for people, but it is a simple truth. The gospel is that you so love the world that you gave your only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. That we are granted the gift of eternal life. And that we walk and talk with you day by day. What grace, what mercy. We praise you for it. Helps us to live our lives in light of it. Now, Lord, also, we want to thank you for the food on the other side. The physical food that we're going to eat. Thank you for providing that, just like you've provided for our salvation. You provide for our sustenance. You give us all things that we need for life and godliness, and that is included. So we thank you for it and those that work hard in putting it together for us. We praise you for all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.